Well, good morning. Uh, sometimes uh, people like to speak. Sometimes people communicate better in words than speaking. For example, this, this following letter that was written by a young woman to her mother, and it reads as follows. Dear Mom, it's with great regret that I'm telling you I've eloped with my new boyfriend. He's so cute, even with all his body piercings and tattoos. And I love to ride on the back of his motorcycle, but that's not the only reason. Mom, I'm pregnant. And Slasher says we'll be very happy in his trailer in the woods. I've also learned that marijuana doesn't hurt anyone, and we'll be growing it for us and his friends. Don't worry, Mom. Now that I'm 16, I know how to take care of myself. Someday I'll visit you so you can get to know your grandchildren. Love, your daughter. P.S. Mom, it's not true. I'm next door. I just wanted you to know that there are worse things in life than my report card. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> With that one type of, of letter in mind, let's think about a, a different one. Let's imagine you're living in a country where there's no religious freedom, and your faith becomes known to local authorities. Your family's lives are now in jeopardy, so you make a difficult decision, but one that you think is for the best. You decide to scatter your family. You send your oldest child up north, you send the youngest one down south, and you send your middle child out west. You end up hearing from them sometime later, and the good news is that they're still alive. But the bad news is they're no longer living for the Lord. From their replies, you get the sense that they're starting to compromise their faith in order to blend in with the culture around them. Now you're concerned again. This time, it's not so much for their physical safety as much as it is for their spiritual well-being. You know what you decide to do? You write them a letter. And this is exactly what we see as we take a quick detour from the Gospel of John into the book of James. James writes a letter to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who, due to persecution, have been scattered abroad. And many scholars feel that James was one of the first New Testament books to be written, which means it was written at a time when the church was comprised, comprised mainly of Jewish believers, which is important because James was written to Christians and it was written for Christians, meaning James is not a gospel track. And what I mean by that, if someone is searching for the Savior and they're longing to get to know him and learn how to be born again, we probably would refer them to the Gospel of John that we've currently been studying because that was John's intent for writing his gospel. He comes right out and states it at the conclusion of his gospel. He says this in John 20, 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why under the direction of the Holy Spirit, John chose to record the exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. When Christ declared, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And that's why he wrote, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John wrote his book so the lost would learn how to be saved through faith in Christ. James, on the other hand, is not writing to lead the lost to Christ. In short, James provides us with instructions on how to live a Christian life. 
how to live as a follower of Jesus in a world that's rejected him and a world that's growing more hostile to his followers. Can we relate to that? James answers questions like, how should Christians handle trials? Should we throw in the towel when adversity comes our way? Should we blame God and go back to our old way of living? Well, James answers these questions and more about putting our faith into practice. And that's what we're going to be examining some of these principles over the next couple weeks. So, so let's dig in and let's determine, first of all, who is James? James 1.1. Starts off, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, in the New Testament, there are four James mentioned. And some might kind of stretch and make an argument that this James wrote this book or that James wrote this book. But it's pretty much universally accepted that the James mentioned here is Jesus' half-brother. He's the author of this letter. Half-brother, of course, to Jesus because they shared the same mom, Mary. But they had a different father as Jesus, we know, is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this is important because John reveals to us in John chapter 7, verse 5, that during Jesus' ministry on earth, not even his brothers were believing in him. I mean, imagine growing up around Jesus. What an experience that must have been. Yet for a variety of factors, his brothers refused to believe in him. And it kind of saddens me even to this day, today, that some grow up in the church around Jesus only later to reject him in life. If James rejected Jesus during his earthly ministry, when Jesus was going around healing the sick and giving the blind sight and walking on water, what do you think changed James' mind? It was the resurrection of Jesus. Hopefully, you recall the clear gospel message that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Let's read that together this morning. Paul writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, our author of the letter. Then he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I mean, I would have loved, I'm sure you would have too, have done, to, been, to have been a fly on the wall during that reunion. All his life, James thought his older brother was crazy. He watched as Jesus was arrested and executed, figuring his conclusions about Jesus were right until the day the resurrected Jesus appeared to James, held out his arms, gave his brother a big hug. I can only imagine what that moment was like when James drops to his knees and realized that his half-brother he grew up with is Lord and God. So he writes this. He writes then, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. He makes his transition from a skeptic to a servant. In fact, we just read he calls himself a bond servant. That's a slave for Christ. Jesus is now Lord of his life. 
And he mentions the 12 tribes of the dispersion, and that refers to Jewish Christians who were originally in Jerusalem at the time. Let's, put, let's think back just real quick to Acts chapter 8, when Stephen was martyred. Persecution broke out against the church, just like the persecution I imagined you to think about during the beginning part of this message. And these believers were scattered, and they ran for their lives, and they ended up all over. So James writes them a letter now, how to live as a brother, as a Christian, in a world filled with conflict and strife and trials and tribulations. So he writes to them in verses 2 through 4, and he goes on to say, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why don't you guys try to finish this sentence with me, please, without looking at your notes. They all lived happily ever after. That's exactly right. That's the phrase I was going for. They all lived happily ever after. And that's what we would call a fairy tale. And why would we call it a fairy tale? Do you know why it's called a fairy tale? Because it's not real, right? It's certainly not my experience and probably isn't yours either. We have all experienced plenty of tragedies Plenty of heartaches, plenty of disappointments, plenty of physical ailments in our lives. And before we go too far into dissecting these verses from James, let me just say that by knowing Jesus Christ, we can have joy even as we suffer through these various trials in our physical earthly bodies. That there's hope even in the darkest time. There's peace even when we're facing death. Right? Because we know that when we walk through the valley of, shadow, of the shadow of death, God is with us. And we know that all things, even things we as humans think are bad things, all things work out together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But unfortunately, some Christian teachers out there, they've, they're teaching a prosperity gospel within the realm of Christianity that should be classified as a fairy tale. We're not promised a stress-free, trial-free, trouble-free life. And some of the earliest writings in Scripture attest to that fact. Let's look at one. How about the poster child of trials and suffering? Who would that be? Job. In Job 1.1, very first book of Job, Job is described as blameless and upright. He's described as one who fears God and turned away from evil. Hebrew poetry repeats itself. To emphasize a point. That's called parallelism. In this case, the point is, Job has really, really, really excellent character. Blameless and upright. Carries with this, this idea of maturity. And the idea of being complete in his character. Fearing God and shunning evil. Parallel statements. Showing Job is a wise man. He's chosen to follow the Lord. The author makes this point, very first verse, first verse, excuse me, that Job's character is above reproach. Yet we all know what happens to Job. In one day, he lost his wealth, his health, and his children. He is so completely and utterly devastated that by the middle of chapter two, he's hardly recognizable as he's sitting on a pile of ashes, scratching his diseased flesh with a shard of broken pottery. And sure, we always conclude that God ultimately blesses Job with twice as much as he had before that. But that doesn't take away the suffering he went through. 
I mean, the real question is, why did Job, a righteous man of faith, have to go through this trial in the first place? Now, from a dating perspective, scholars feel that Job was one of the earliest books written that we have in our Bible. How about the last book? Go from the beginning to the end. Revelation. John, the author of Revelation. John was a good guy, wasn't he? I mean, he was the disciple who Jesus loved. And he was arguably Jesus' closest friend. He was so tight with Jesus that at the Last Supper, which we'll read about soon in John, he was reclining, laying on Jesus' chest. Can you imagine that? He was such a good guy that Jesus trusted John to take care of his mother, Mary, after he died on the cross for our sins. So if anyone ever deserved a special reward, like a get-out-of-suffering-free pass, it would have been John. But when John wrote Revelation 1-9, he calls himself, and get this, our brother and partner in tribulation. That means persecution, affliction, distress. John was about 90 years old when he wrote Revelation. Is anyone here about 90? Or you feel like you're about 90, right? Yeah. John probably had a few body aches in a couple places, but he refused to bow down to the Roman emperor, and therefore he was banished to an island in the Mediterranean called Patmos, which I'm sure wasn't a piece of cake either until he ultimately died. Now, why doesn't God just allow John to retire peacefully after a lifetime of service to the Lord? I mean, Job is Old Testament, right? But John, he's New Testament. He's one of us. And aren't things supposed to be different this side of the cross? I can understand it if John got himself in trouble for doing something bad. But it appears to me he did nothing but good. And from a human standpoint, Job and John, they didn't deserve the trials they were enduring. But remember this. God's ways are always higher than our ways, right? His thoughts are always higher than our thoughts. And God can use our suffering both for our own good and for his own glory. And that's not an easy concept to digest, is it? It means that sometimes you can do everything right in this world and end up in the outhouse at times. And at the same time, somebody can do everything wrong in this world, and they can reside in a penthouse at times. Because the first insight James provides into Christian living regarding trials applies to both us today and to his first century audience. And it's this. James writes, when trials occur. This is not a conditional statement. He's saying it's a guarantee in our life. Let's reflect for a moment here back to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, by saying, and you guys all know this, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the, on the rock. We know the picture he's painting. The rains fell and the floods came, right? Uh, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. Jesus also said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of that house. Now, what was the one thing in common that the wise man and the fool had? Both had to weather a storm, the trials of life. 
In this life, the storms will come. That's a certainty. And over the years together, as a family here, we've battled many storms. And right now, some of us in this room are right smack in the middle of a storm involving cancer or a different kind of sickness. And maybe the trial you're facing involves a relationship with a loved one in your family, or maybe the trial has something to do with your employment. But the bottom line is, is that our faith in Christ is not the thing that keeps us from trials. Faith is the thing that brings us through the trials. And in this life, you're going to have them. So the question is not why are they happening or how do I avoid them. The question is how should I respond? As a believer in Jesus Christ, how should I respond to the trials? So let's move on in, chapter two, in verse 2 as James writes, Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, if we look at that verse beginning of part of that verse there, encounter various trials. That word that they translated for encounter, it, 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 its original meaning implies that you fall into a trial really through no carelessness of your own. It's really not anything you've done, no fault of your own, kind of like in our earlier example with Job and John. right? James writes, when you do fall into various trials, consider it, reckon it, count it as joy. And that's not easy, is it? The point is, is to recognize that every trial brings with it a unique opportunity for both God and for us. Well, regarding us, what, what's, what kind of opportunity would that be? And as we put this passage back up on the screen, why does God allow trials and suffering? Because we read, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, some of you can see on the screen, the answer to that question is this two-part formula found in this verse, right? Do you see it? Testing, faith, plus testing equals endurance. It's not faith in Christ plus a stress-free life equals endurance, this unwavering conviction in the life of a believer. Rather, it's faith plus trials or suffering equals endurance. If I was to ask you, and you don't have to do this, but I was to, if I was to ask you show, uh, with a show of hands, how many of you would like to grow your faith in Christ? Yes. How many of you would like to become more like Jesus? Yes. So then, according to this verse, James says there's one way to get there. Faith plus suffering over time. That's the pathway to spiritual maturity. So now do you see how these trials are ultimately for our benefit? How God can use them to mold us and strengthen our faith as we progress from, from baby Christians to more mature Christians. So that as James says, and just let this sink in, the trials are there for our endurance so that you may be perfect. That's mature. So you may be more mature. So you be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that doesn't discount the variety of feelings and emotions that surface during a trial. We are human after all. But the number one lesson today that we have to realize is that trials are ultimately for our own good and for our own spiritual maturity. Now, as we should do frequently in life, let's take the focus off of ourselves, okay? Let's take the focus off ourselves, and let's look at trials from God's perspective. 
okay? Because he can use our trials for his glory. And that's why we're here on earth in the first place, all right? To honor and to glorify God. So remember, we can assume that some of James' original audience that he's writing to, they might have and, and most likely did know Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Stephen, who was martyred. And after Stephen was buried in Acts 8.3, we read this. But Saul began ravaging the church. That's the Apostle Paul before he was converted. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And the words used here kind of picture Saul as acting like a wild animal, like ripping into his carcass. It's not pretty. Saul is acting like a predator, and his prey are the Christians. He's hunting them down. I mean, what good? What good can come of that? What good can come from that trial? And how can they consider that as joy? Well, their joy is knowing that ultimately God is in control and God will be glorified because the very next verse reads this. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Due to the persecution after Stephen's death, James's original audience was scattered and dispersed, and they preached the word of God, and people turned to Christ. People were being saved because people got moving, and people got moving because of suffering and trials. You have to admit, sometimes God has to make us uncomfortable in order to get us moving. Do you realize that many people outside of Jerusalem would have never heard the good news about Christ at this moment anyway, unless there was a time of suffering and persecution. Do you see how God can use our trials for his glory? That truly is a reason to encounter a trial with joy. That is God and can and will be glorified. You know, some of the biggest advocates for the unborn are women who had once had an abortion. They've come out of this trial. They've realized their mistake. They've given it over to the Lord. And now they fight tirelessly for the kingdom and the unborn's right to life. You won't find a bigger advocate for victims of sexual trafficking than someone who suffered a similar type of sexual assault themselves. They've given that trial, that trauma, over to the Lord. They've placed it in God's hands to be redeemed and used for his glory as they minister, minister to others going through similar types of trauma. The point is, is that we're not supposed to be defined by our trials. We're supposed to be refined by the trials. Like gold as it passes through the fire. Good people suffer because God uses our trials for his glory and for our own maturity and our own perfection. And part of this maturity is gaining wisdom. James continues and says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives it to all, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the man who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable. In all his ways. Now, let that sink in just for a minute because 
Doesn't James kind of have a funny way of putting things? If anyone lacks wisdom, he says. Like, is there, I read that and I think, is there anybody here in this room that, that does not lack wisdom? If I asked you, who, who lacks wisdom? Nobody, or who has all the wisdom they could ever have, like their cup is just simply overflowing with wisdom, nobody raised their hand. You know, it's not if. James, no one in his audience would have made that claim either. He could have written, since you all lack wisdom, but James is gentle here he's, rather than being abrasive. His statement is assumed to be true. We all lack wisdom. It's not really an if statement. We all lack wisdom, especially regarding these trials we encounter in life. So what is wisdom? And there's probably many definitions of wisdom. Personally, I just kind of think it's wisdom's ability to make God-honoring decisions. I mean, let's just kind of go as simple as possible. It's just making God-honoring decisions. That's, you're a wise person when you do that. In general, it's like possessing this skill that you're going to live your life in a way that pleases God. And, and take it from an almost senior citizen here, that it's a skill you must develop over time with practice, right? It's like the, our musicians up here. They, they work tirelessly, and they, they've mastered their musician or the golfer who hits that perfect golf shot. It's, it's something, wisdom's a skill we need to practice over time and get better at it. Now, the thing about wisdom is we usually don't know we need it until we reach for it, right? We've all had those moments where you find yourself asking God, Hey, what do I do now? Have you ever had one of those? You probably have. And the next time it happens, here's what you need to do. Count it as joy. Because according to James, the good news is, is that believers in Christ, we don't have to grapple around in the dark, you know, searching for wisdom. James says simply pray for wisdom. And specifically, as we face these trials, you know, pray for wisdom. And God will give it generously to us without reproach. He will help us. He will give us direction. If we submit to his will and follow his instructions, we have to trust in the wisdom that he gives and do not doubt. Because at the end of that section we just read, James addresses the double-minded person. And a double-minded person approaches a trial like this. He says, Jesus, I'll try it my way. And then maybe if that doesn't work, I'll try it your way. You know, he's not totally submitting to the Lord. It's a mixture of thy will be done and my will be done. You see, if our heart is not right, then God, he does reserve the right to withhold his wisdom. But if our heart is right, after we ask God for wisdom, how is he going to answer that? How will he answer our requests? Well, back to the original audience again. James knew his audience, and they were Jewish believers in Jesus. And as they read about wisdom, who do you think, as a Jewish believer would come to mind from the Old Testament as a person who also once asked God for wisdom. Solomon. And Solomon's wisdom did not die with him. Instead, some of his wisdom was condensed down into the book of Proverbs. So regarding wisdom, let's just look at one today. In Proverbs 2 through 6, we see this. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So along with prayer, if you realize you need wisdom, you realize you lack wisdom and you need, that you need to face a trial you're going through in life, and you decide you're going to search for it, you know, where can you find wisdom? From the mouth of the Lord, the word of God. And I know everyone's probably thinking, yeah, Mark, we know that, but is it really a reality in your life? Because in a world of social media 
and of secular music and of internet streaming and online gaming, in proportion to those things, how much time are you spending in the word of God? Because wisdom is not going to come from those other places, especially not from social media. Wisdom comes from the mouth of the Lord, who chose to speak through over 40 different men over the course of 1,600 years, and these works were compiled into 66 books or letters that are contained in our Bible, the Word of God. And in the pages of the Bible, we read of the greatest factual story ever told. Because once upon a time, and this is not a fairy tale, God himself stepped into the universe he created, and he became a man. And sure, you can make the argument that Job and the apostle John, even James and the others in the early church, they got what they deserved because maybe they were good, but they weren't perfect. But that argument doesn't hold any water for Jesus. He was perfect. He did not deserve to suffer. He deserved nothing but glory, and he chose nothing but pain. He had stripes whipped into his back. He was spit on and beaten and nailed to a cross where he died for our sins. Amen. And it was out of his great love for us that he allowed himself to suffer and die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is able to bring something so beautiful out of something so horrible, so horrific as the cross. Without the death of Jesus, there just is no eternal life for you and me. So if you happen to be here today and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, then we all urge you to accept that gift of his suffering on your behalf. Know that he understands whatever trial we might be facing. Jesus is very familiar with heartache and pain. He's very familiar with the darkness sin creates in our lives. He's willing to wash that away with the power of his blood. And if you're here today and you're already a Christian and you're going through a trial, please reflect on these opening verses in James this week as they were written for you and for me. In John 16.33, which was the verse that Rick closed with last week, John 16.33 Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation, trials, tribulation. But take courage. I've overcome the world. Trials are going to come. We're going to experience hardships. The question is simply, what are we going to do with it? Will you let it define you and destroy you? Or will you use the sufferings and trials in your life to mature and to grow in your faith and to glorify God? 